Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to today's episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colbrook. With me here today is Patrick Andalek, author of Donkey Work, Congressional Democrats in Conservative America, 1974-1994, published this month by University Press of Kansas. Andalek outlines Democrats' institutional dominance of Congress during a period often equated with conservative ascendancy, the culture wars, and Reaganite economics. While historians have spilt much ink over the rise of conservatism during this period, few studies considered the fate of the Democrats after Nixon's election in 1968. Andalek addresses this gap for a case study of the one political institution Democrats continue to dominate, Congress. So in many respects, this book joins a, a sort of burgeoning literature that seeks to complicate popular understandings of the 1980s as a decade, as I say, recommended, uh, sorry, dominated by Reagan. Could you uh, begin by outlining how historians have framed this period, especially in relation to the rise of conservatism? I think a lot of people start with 1994, when Alan Brinkley said that conservatism was an orphan in historical scholarship. Mm. Um, kind of since that point, it's it's had a lot of parents and guardians, and, and a great many scholars have uh, explored post-war or 20th century, 20th, 21st century uh, conservatism through a variety of prisms, looking at you know race, gender, class, religion, region, space, things like that, um, and um, the consensus that has kind of formed, particularly on uh, U.S. politics after the 1960s, is that America was uh, rightward bound, to use uh, Julian Zelizer and uh, Bruce Shulman's phrase, um, and so. That kind of consensus has sort of formed this idea that um, the United States swung from a period dominated by liberal politics and policy in the mid-20th century to an era dominated by conservative politics and policies. Um, comparatively less work has been done on liberalism and on uh, uh, left-wing politics and on the Democratic Party, which is my particular area, with some kind of notable exceptions. You know, um, John and Bell, who's looked at... Uh, California as a bastion of, of uh, liberal mobilization in this period. Uh, Lily Geismer, who's looked at sort of uh, the impact of suburbia on liberal activism. Mm-hmm. Bradford Martin, you know, who's looked at um, how different uh, activists mobilized in the 1980s against uh, conservative politics. Um, but there's still this kind of consensus that the era was dominated by conservatism, and I um, intend to be part of the movement that's just complicating that picture a, a bit more. I, I'm not trying to suggest that conservatism isn't a formidable force, or, or that it doesn't have a significant and important legacy for American politics, society, culture, economics, um, but just that we shouldn't neglect the role of liberalism, and that liberalism uh, you know, and the Democratic Party, from my work, is a more vital force than is often that is often assumed. So could you just briefly outline uh, how this project developed and what then drew you to the particular topic of Congressional Democrats in the 1970s and 80s? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think like a lot of people, uh, my um, 
doctoral work uh, grew up by accident. So this book, my first, it grows out of my uh, PhD, um, and it kind of, um, it sort of, I suppose, started to form uh, at a very early stage, and I was doing my undergraduate studies uh, at the University of Edinburgh. They have a great history department, a particularly good uh, cohort of American historians, and I became very interested in uh, post-war politics in the 50s and 60s. They had some great modules on there, and I was kind of at the uh, that was in the early 2000, well, mid, uh, 2005 to 2009, and I kind of realised that a lot less had been done on liberalism after the 1960s. There was a lot of work up to this crisis of liberalism in 1968, and then it kind of tailed off in the literature. Mm. Um, so that's really what drew my attention to it. I remember at the time, uh, kind of my first attempts at drafting a... a, a, a some kind of abstract or a proposal for postgraduate study, it, I uh, pitched the idea that um, 1930s to the 1960s were a liberal era, the 1960s to 2008 was a conservative era, and now with Barack Obama, we were entering a new era of liberal dominance. And that fell apart really quickly. But my interest in conservatism kind of came up uh, from... Um, just kind of realizing how dominant uh, the presidency still was in our studies of politics, particularly when we're thinking about politics at a national level. Um, we do tend to think about Reagan's America or Obama's America or Clinton's America or whatever. And so I just became more interested in thinking about the other national institutions of American politics, uh, particularly the other kind of major democratic institutions, small d democratic Congress, and uh, thinking about ways that trends in Congress um, can often. Uh, be run counter to some of the trends we see if we focus only on the presidency. Mm. Uh, and so I kind of stumbled into doing this that way. Yeah. Great. Uh, so, I mean, you've just said that the trends in, in Congress often uh, go against the trends in presidential politics. Uh, I guess my next question then is, is why was that the case uh, during this period? Why did the Democrats dominate, dominate Congress but only win uh, two presidential elections? Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think there's a lot of factors in in play there. Uh, ones that I'm I try to unpack a bit in the book, and I'm not sure I fully answered it to my own satisfaction. A number of small things like you know the incumbency advantage of different uh, representatives and senators, um, the way that different areas of the country, particularly the South, take quite a long time to uh, to kind of realign. Mm-hmm. Um, and move from, from one party to another. Um, but I think a kind of a root, and the thing I'm, I'm sort of exploring in the, um, uh, in the book is that it's a rise of, uh, of a kind of political culture that leads to split-ticket voting quite often. Uh, so people voting for a Republican president and Democratic congressperson. Um, and I think a lot of that is to do with something that a number of political scientists have explored, this idea of American political culture as being ideologically conservative but programmatically liberal. Um, so that uh, in a, at a kind of ideological level, there, there is a victory for conservatism and for conservatism, that the ideas which animate the conservative movement are very popular and have a great deal of appeal. But the ones that you translate those into programs, into the kinds of things that the American people want the government to do, there is a, a decisive advantage for different uh, different kind of liberal ideas and agendas and, and policies. Um, so I think there is a way in which Democrats in Congress, because they 
present themselves much more as, you know, servants of their constituents and as protecting different programs that their constituents benefit from are able to uh, remain much more competitive in this period. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, your book starts in uh, 1974, two years after uh, Nixon's re-election. Uh, could you just outline uh, what the position of the Democrats were uh, in this year? How um, had the party changed since 1968? And uh, what dilemmas were they facing? Yeah, well, they're in a, a surprisingly good position by about 1974, um, particularly if you had been looking at the Democratic Party kind of crisis between 1968 uh, and 1973-74. Uh, um, partly they're benefiting from the Watergate crisis, which has uh, quite um, badly damaged the Nixon administration and is reflecting on the Republican Party too. They're benefiting from a very uh, significant economic downturn uh, in 73-74. Um, and... You know, you get this. Uh, you know, back in 1969, you get a Republican member of, uh, of Nixon. Uh, so I remember the Nixon administration, Kevin Phillips, writing this book, *The Emerging Republican Majority*. By about 1974, you've got a Democratic aide, uh, Lanny Davis, uh, still crops up on Fox News from time to time, writing a book called *The Emerging Democratic Majority*. Uh, so it seems to be that uh, there's this been kind of a flip and that uh, a brief moment when the Republicans could have taken. Uh, could have become a, a majority party in the United States seems to have dissipated. You know the share of the electorate uh, that the, um, the share of the electorate that are registered as Republicans or will identify as Republicans dropped to about eighteen percent, um, and the Democrats seem to be heading in nineteen seventy four towards a very big victory in Congress uh, in the midterm elections. The new president Gerald Ford is talking about uh, a legislative dictatorship. And, the way, or, or, or the the the, um, the new class that wins that election in 1974, the so-called Watergate babies, uh, represent a kind of generational shift within the Democratic Party, and suggest ways that um, things like the uh, the new politics campaigns of Eugene McCarthy and George McGovern are having an impact on who the Democratic Party's establishment is kind of going to be within subsequent years. So you have a lot of new politicians coming up through the ranks who in a few decades will be uh, will be senior figures within the party. Um, so, you know, most kind of uh, famously 1974 is the year Bill Clinton makes his first kind of um, failed bid for Congress. Um, but he is one of the few younger members who actually does quite badly in that, in that year. Um, and you get this, uh, so the Democrats make these big games in House, they win 49 seats in the Senate, sorry, 49 seats in the House of Representatives, 49 extra seats, they make a net gain of four in the Senate, and a lot of these new members are very young, uh, young by congressional standard, I suppose I should say, uh, 30s and 40s. Um, a lot of them are relatively inexperienced, um, and a lot of them have very different uh, cultural ideas uh, than older generations of Democrats, um, and a great many of them represent relatively sort of stable, comfortable suburban seats. Um, and so they're able to, um, they, they come in with very different perspectives on this. Uh, one representative, Tim Worth, uh, starts talking about how uh, Democrat, these, these Democrats are the party, or, or are the uh, children of, you know, Vietnam and television, and, uh, and they're very different to, and the Cold War, and they're very different to an older generation. 
and it, it seems to me that there's going to be quite a lot of uh, a lot of energy from this from this new movement. Um, younger members of, of the Congress at this point, like you know, Elizabeth Holtzman from New York, talking about uh, fresh person power and how uh, new and comparatively young uh, members of Congress are going to be able to have more influence over the body. So it seems like there's a, a, a generational shift happening within the Democratic Party, and it seems like it's happening at a moment when the Democrats have recovered. Uh, and uh, there's been this sort of wobble in the late 1950s and early 70s, but maybe that's uh, stabilised. Okay, so uh, this influx of new Democrats in 1974 sort of developed in tandem with several uh, reforms to the institution of Congress itself during the 1970s. Could you just outline some of those reforms, uh, particularly uh, shifting uh, power dynamics in uh, committees? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the backdrop to this is that um, the Congress has been coming more, becoming more assertive uh, in the face of the Nixon administration, uh, because you've had this for the first time, you know, since Zachary Taylor in the 19th century, you've had a president uh, of one party and a Congress entirely composed of the opposite party, or rather, I should say, uh, a president who wins office, Richard Nixon, without carrying either House of Congress with him. Mm. Uh, so Nixon is kind of the first president since Taylor to have a consistently uh, opposition party Congress throughout. And as the relationship between them breaks down, the Congress becomes more assertive. Uh, it passes things like the Congressional Budget and uh, Impoundment Act in 1973 and the War Powers Act, which seem to be constraining presidential power. So all of these are suggesting that the Congress is becoming more assertive within the constitutional system, right? It's becoming more aggressive. Um, when these new members arrive in Congress, they bring with them, um, or they become part of a... Um, a congressional reform movement that has been rumbling along for several decades, all of which are concerned with um, democratizing the institution of Congress and in particular with breaking the old power of the committee system. Um, Deborah Abdo, New York representative, uh, famously said uh, at one of the first meetings of the, uh, of the new Congress that the reinforcements have arrived. And the have some very significant successes. I mean, one of the first things this new class do uh, is they require all committee chairs to come and meet with them, um, all committee chairs who are hoping to be reappointed to come and meet with them before that happens. And they actually decide that they're not going to appoint or reappoint certain chairs. Um, Previously, the system had worked on something called seniority, for those who don't know, is, is uh, the principle that states that um, your status in the House is tied to your length of service. Mm. Um, now, because the places like, you know, the, the South is an extremely almost kind of one-party democratic state uh, for much of the 20th century, this meant that committees tended to be dominated by fairly conservative Southerners. Um, by the 1970s, they introduced new ideas of uh the committees being more responsive to the caucus itself. Um, they also expand the resources that individual members of Congress have, uh, so that you know individual members of Congress have, have new uh, funds that they can use, they have new guaranteed staffers. Previously, those gifts had been within the, um, uh, within the kind of purview of committee chairs. So all of this is about um, tipping the balance towards the caucus, so the, the gathering of the Democratic Party in either the House of Representatives or the Senate, and kind of weakening the committee chairs, um, which is intended to A, make the Congress more democratic, make it more responsive to its members, and in theory, therefore, should make uh, the Democratic 
party in Congress and the Democratic Congress more liberal. Okay, uh, so you uh, previously mentioned Gerald Ford referring to uh, a legislative dictatorship, uh, and he also was very uh, veto-happy during his short presidency. So um, what problems did the Democrats face in the mid-1970s as they they came up against uh, Ford? Yeah, that's true. Um, the Ford uh, administration, I mean, initially the Ford administration says they're, they're quite startled by how purposeful and unified the Democratic Party, and particularly the younger Democrats, mm. seem to be, um, in, certainly in reforming Congress and in implementing those, um, those changes to, to the committee system that I was just talking about. And the number of, uh, or the kind of majorities the Democratic Party wins in 74, I remember because they, they, they have majorities going into that election, they emerge from that election with super majorities. And in theory, they have majorities in the House and the Senate that are now veto proof that if they uh, vote in concert, um, they can overturn any presidential veto. Uh, so the veto kind of becomes Gerald Ford's principal weapon. Uh, and. Um, the Democratic Party in both House and Senate struggled to overcome that, struggled to overturn any vetoes that, uh, that Ford puts forward. I think in large part this is uh, to do with a lack of ideological coordination within, uh, within the Congress. There's no real consideration of, of what a Democratic Party should do once the Congress has been reformed. There's a, there's a kind of widespread um, agreement that Congress needs to be reformed. Um, but beyond empowering individual members, there's no sense of what you should do once that's been done. Mm. Um, so there are a number of kind of veto override votes which fail, but they tend to fail by only a few votes. Um, and I think part of the issue here is that these, you know, much vaunted uh, veto-proof majorities actually turn out to be as much of a, a liability as an advantage. Um, because they're only, you know, narrowly above the uh, above that threshold. So you only need a handful of Democrats not to vote with the majority, and suddenly the veto override vote fails. So you have this kind of consistent pattern of the Democrats win votes by very lopsided margins, but it's not quite high enough to get them over that, you know, magic number. Right. Um, I guess so it also it, discourages bipartisan uh, relationships as well. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's kind of, it's as much about um, managing expectations as anything else. And this kind of fear that um, the Democratic Party is somehow going to seize control of the, the agenda in Washington. Mm. And it also suggests that, um, or it also kind of indicates the difficulty that any Congress has in trying to push back against the presidency trying to push against the executive in this period. Mm. Uh, so one of the, uh, the really fascinating parts of your book is uh, you talk about uh, during Jimmy Carter's uh, presidency that several Democrats in Congress kind of became quote-unquote co-presidents or alternative presidents, so Ted Kennedy, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, could you outline how this process uh, developed and uh, why particularly it happened during uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency? Yeah, sure. I think, um, I mean, part of the thing that there'd always been a fairly uneasy relationship between Carter and much of the rest of the Democratic Party. Mm. Um, at least in part, that's to do with the fact that uh, Carter kind of has his own organization, his own operation, and his political career takes place outside a lot of um, 
traditional Democratic Party structures. Uh, and certainly, that once you get to Washington, D.C., there are a lot of complaints when Jimmy Carter arrives in office that he has a kind of Georgia mafia, right? That he has his own people around him. He doesn't take um, advice from uh, members of the establishment within the uh, within the within the you know within the Beltway. Um, so he has his kind of, kind of parallel organization. Uh, there's also the fact that that a lot of Democrats in Congress don't feel like they owe Jimmy Carter anything in 1976. There's a, a, a sort of sense that any Democrat's going to win that election. Um, Jimmy Carter only wins it narrowly. Uh, and there's also the fact that a lot of Democrats, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, for example, can look at the fact that he won his Senate election in 1976 by a greater margin than Carter won New York State. Mm. And so they don't feel like Jimmy Carter's coattails helped them. If anything, they feel that their coattails as Democrats help Jimmy Carter. Uh, so straight away, there's no um, there's no sense of dependency or, or any way in which a lot of Democrats in either body feel like their careers are in some ways tied to the success of Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. That is compounded by the way that Carter then goes on to handle Congress, uh, which is consistently pretty, um, pretty ham-fisted. Um, he tends to kind of easily stumble into obvious flights against individual members of Congress in very kind of basic ways. So he, you know, he doesn't consult, you know, uh, Speaker Tip O'Neill before making certain appointments uh, using people from Massachusetts. Uh, you know, very small things, but all together they kind of add up to uh, add up to a, a kind of lack of concern for cultivating a relationship between them. Um, and there's also a way in which Jimmy Carter kind of conceptualizes his own uh, relationship with the American people and his own job as president. There's a, a memo I cite in the book from one of Walter Mondale, Vice President Walter Mondale's aides, um, who writes to Mondale and says, could you please ask the president to stop saying that he's going to take a particular issue to the American people and go over the heads of Congress? It's not that we can't do that at a certain point, but could you please stop him saying that he's going to do that? Because it's just antagonizing members of Congress um, who don't like the president, you know, couching them as some sort of anti-democratic roadblock to his his reform ambitions. Mm-hmm. Um, so very much throughout the, uh, the Carter presidency, there's a lot of tension with certain parts of the Democratic Party. Not exclusively. He has very good relationships with some Democrats. Um, he has a very good relationship with some Democrats in the South. He has very good relationships with some of the younger Democrats, some of those Watergate babies. Uh, many of whom uh, actually embrace some of his uh, his you know anti New Deal impulses uh, and, and his belief that maybe uh, some of the um, kind of big government projects that the Democratic Party has been pursuing need to be rolled back a bit. So a number of them are sympathetic to him, but as the 1970s wears on, as Carter becomes more kind of bogged down it becomes more and more plausible for there to be some kind of primary challenge in 1980 to Jimmy Carter. Um, and that itself is, is really indicative of, of how secure the Democrats and particularly in Washington really felt themselves to be, is that they, they didn't realistically see uh, a significant threat from a conservative movement that could, you know, turf them out of office very quickly if they, were, uh, uh, if they weren't careful. Uh, they thought, well, we can just swap the president. Um, yeah. in 1980 and we'll still win the election uh, and in fact some thought that's the only way we're going to win in 1980 because Jimmy Carter is so unpopular. Now obviously that uh, coalesces around the Kennedy campaign, Ted Kennedy's campaign in 1980 which Timothy Stanley has written about uh, very well but 
um, prior to that, there's a lot of scouting around for different options. So Daniel Patrick Moynihan becomes one uh, who gets written up in the uh, written up quite seriously. And in fact, the Nation magazine becomes so worried that they devote an entire feature issue to uh, picking over his career um, to try and discourage uh, Democrats from supporting him. Well, of course, uh, Reagan won in uh, 1980, and that's often seen as kind of, if, if it's not 1968, then it's usually 1980 that's cited as the turning point uh, towards conservatism. Uh, so how do congressional Democrats respond to Reagan's rise, and how does that complicate our understanding of the 1980s as a decade of, of conservatism? Yeah. Oh, good question. Uh Initially, there's a certain amount of shock uh, at Reagan's victory, not just Reagan's victory, the fact that uh, Reagan carries the Senate with him in 1980. So the Democrats lose the Senate for the first time since the 1950s. Mm. There are a number of reports of Democratic senators you know, asking their aides, you know, how's a m- minority supposed to behave, right? How do we actually conduct ourselves? Because they've never had to confront that. They've never had to think about what the, their powers look like when they are actually in the minority. Um, there's a, a certain amount of shock because there was uh, an expectation that Reagan simply couldn't win. Um, not totally dissimilar to some of the responses to Donald Trump in in nineteen in two thousand sixteen. Um, there was actually a, a considerable amount of jubilation within the Carter White House when Reagan won the um, won the nomination because they believed he was the only uh, the only Republican they could definitely beat in nineteen eighty. Of course, I think underestimated how unpopular Jimmy Carter was by that point. Um, there's also there's a certain amount of relief. Uh, Gillis Long, Louisiana Democrat, said that he, he feel he felt psychologically lighter than he had in years in 1980 um, or 1981 because suddenly it felt like the onus was no longer on the Democrats to do the running, um, and that kind of contributes to a message coming down from the very top of the party in Congress, from party leadership in both the House and the Senate. Um, and certainly in the House where there's a, there is a Democratic majority, that um, the Reagan administration should be given some space to uh, pursue its agenda, right? That there should be some measure of cooperation or there should not be total obstruction of what Reagan is trying to do. Um, a, because the Democratic Party needs to show that it's understood this nature of its defeat. Um, and B, because um, the party needs time to sort of regroup and they want to give Reagan space uh, to fail, a lot of them say that. Mm. So there's some criticism from younger members who think that party leadership is not doing enough to resist Reagan. Um, but although the Reagan administration has some early successes, and particularly my focus in the book is on uh, the Reagan administration's uh, desire to cut back the welfare state, um, they have some early successes on that. I mean, they do particularly well with tax cutting. Um, but the problem they quickly encounter is that it's actually extremely difficult to cut back the the welfare state itself. Although you know they, they do have some success there as well. A lot of that is exemplified, I think, at a point I make in the chapter on it in the battle over the attempted reform of social security in the early 1980s. Um, so the Reagan administration tries to push through a, a very wide-reaching uh, reform of, of the Social Security program um, in response to what they say is a kind of demographic crisis that's going to destroy Social Security. And the Democrats, in alliance with a number of, um, of external bodies, things like the American Association of Retired Persons, 
are able to mobilize quite an effective resistance campaign, which eventually forces the Reagan administration to appoint a presidential commission, which is the kind of thing you do when you want an issue to go away, um, and kind of abandon the, uh, the program. Um, and uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, actually, mentioned a few times, who's central to this uh, story, who's a sort of key figure in, in, and eventually ends up on the presidential commission, says that part of the problem here is that Reagan and the rest of his administration um, misunderstood the nature of the American state and the American people's relationship to the welfare state. And they say the thing is, is there just isn't as much fraud or abuse or waste as the administration seems to think. And that for good or ill, uh, every program, every, um, every entitlement has its own constituency. Um, and that when you try to cut those programs, the constituencies will mobilize against you. Mm. Um, David Stockman, who's uh, Reagan's OMB director um, and very much a kind of true believer in the Reagan revolution, comes to a, a similar conclusion. Uh, and he sees the, the battle over Social Security as this kind of seminal moment in uh, the Reagan administration's um, a battle, with the, uh, uh, battle with the forces of kind of the liberal establishment. He says, you know, the, uh, the welfare state has been kind of ratified in the fire of political uh, confrontation here. He criticizes Reagan for being too weak to push forward with uh, what would have been an unpopular program. Uh, so the sort of uh, driving theme of this book in many respects is that uh, the Democrats still have a substantial control of Congress, even though uh, the Republicans are successful uh, in presidential elections, that kind of flips in some respects in the 1990s uh, with the election of Bill Clinton in 1992 and then the uh, Republican Revolution in 1994. Um, and I remember until the election of Donald Trump that everyone was saying that the presidency was effectively uh, guaranteed to be Democrats for several decades to come. Uh, so why does that flip uh, in the 90s and what ultimately leads to the Republican Revolution? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. There is, uh, in some ways, a complete inverse of that, exactly that discourse you're talking about in the you know, 2010s, about the idea of the presidency being democratic, but Congress being sort of a Republican fiefdom. Um, there's a lot of discussion about, in the late 80s and early 90s, about the Republican lock on the presidency and the uh, permanent democratic Congress, as it's referred to. And so this idea that the Democrats won't lose control of, of Congress. Um, I think there are a number of factors that come together in 1994 uh, that, um, that create a kind of, uh, the greatest sort of moment that becomes written up as the, the Republican Revolution. Um, I think the, uh, a big thing that's happening here is a kind of delayed realignment of the South. Um, a, a lot of Southern states over the sort of 1980s have been steadily moving towards Republican control. I think it's very significant that the leader of that um, sort of Republican insurgency in '94, Newt Gingrich, is a Georgia Republican. Um, uh, and I think there is a, a there are, so there's a kind of rolling realignment going on there. I think it's it's also indicative of how um, effective the uh, Republican campaign is in 1994, and in particular, the way that the Republicans for the first time nationalised. Uh, congressional elections. So whereas I think Democrats previously have had the advantage that congressional elections are often quite particularist mm. um, and often 
they play to an, an incumbency advantage or a constituency advantage that some Democrats have. By 1994, that election gets nationalized with the contract for America, um, which leads to the Republicans enjoying greater successes than they'd had uh, in previous congressional elections. There's also the fact that, you know, the very fact that there is a Democrat, uh, Democratic president for the first time means that Republicans are able to define themselves against that. Um, but they're able to go into that election with a very clear program, almost as though they're a parliamentary party for the first time. Uh, and I think that gives them an edge in that election. Hmm. Uh, so one of the uh, the broader arguments that you make in this book, which I found uh, particularly fascinating, is that the Democrats' dominance of Congress ultimately constrains the party, um, which I found a, a really complex and nuanced perspective. So I was wondering why you, you feel that this institutional dominance ultimately led to political complacency and uh, ideological fracturing? Yeah, I think... Um, I think in short, right, uh, the uh, problem the Democratic Party has in this period is there kind of isn't a decisive realignment after either 1968 or 1990. You could perhaps argue that there is one after 1994, uh, or it, perhaps the decisive realignment doesn't come from 2016, right? Um, we'll see. But the very fact, I think, that the Democratic Party, say, unlike the Republican Party in the 1930s, is not shut out of power in a very significant way. It means, A, they never really confront the idea that uh, that there has been any sort of realignment that has decisively favoured conservatism. It also means that they aren't yet moved to create a kind of alternative infrastructure in the same way that conservatives are over the course of the 20th century. Uh, I think one decisive advantage that conservatives have had um, well, advantage might be too strong a word, but certainly uh, one defining feature of the conservative movement, I think, that has given them a great deal of energy, is the fact that since, you know, the 1930s, even until today, they still have the mindset of insurgents. You know, they still feel like there's some kind of liberal establishment which is constraining them, which they have to fight against. Um, the Democratic Party never kind of loses power in that way over this period, um, or it's never really shut out from the corridors of power uh, in a way that might force them to kind of reckon uh, more systematically with, you know, what it means to be an opposition and how they can recover. Um, so I think that, that in that sense, the Congress, although it's a useful bulwark for the party, although it ensures that then, you know, they're able to resist the Reagan revolution, for example, um, it also means that they never have to confront uh, a wilderness. Right, they're never totally out of out of power. Hmm. So, so in many respects, the fact that they don't have uh, any explicit kind of wilderness years is problematic in the long run because they don't have to face up to their own declining power. Yeah, exactly. So there's never there never it's never really a smash moment. Right. So there's never a point where they feel like, well, we need to rebuild from here. Yeah. There's no sort of uh, Roosevelt's election in 1932, for instance, where the Republicans just lose out in, in, in all areas. Great. Well, um, thank you very much for being on the uh, program today, Patrick. I really enjoyed that conversation found it really fascinating. We just have time to ask you one more question, which is, uh, what are you working on now? Oh, um, well, I'm kind of continuing the theme of the Democratic Party in Congress. I'm moving on to... Um, write a, um, a kind of biography of a congressional office of one particular Watergate baby, uh, and that's um, uh, 
Congressman Henry Wackman, who's a congressman for a, a Los Angeles uh, district, uh, and his papers have recently been deposited with UCLA, and so I'm going to be tracing his uh, congressional office or from 1975 to 2015 when he retires. And the intention of the book is to try and reimagine political biography in a sense, so to separate Henry Waxman the individual from Henry Waxman the congressperson and sort of think about how a congressional office interacts with um, lobbyists and uh, activist groups and other elements in, in sort of, you know, national politics in California and sort of think about how congressional offices function in this new era of the, the post-reform Congress, as you know, Barbara Davidson referred to it. Hmm, well, that sounds really uh, fascinating. I very much look forward to reading the results of that research. Uh, thanks again for being Thank on too. the uh, programme, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It's been great. Great chatting.